I mean, I had panic attacks throughout like the year of, of this like arc of, you know, it's your personal name on the line. I didn't want, you know, I had every intention and, and good intentions to deliver on what I promised people. back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Really excited to share this, the 500th episode of Going Deep with you. It's an interview with Marshall Haas. Marshall has candidly the type of business and entrepreneurial success that I aspire to. Before hitting the age of 35, he has built multiple six and seven figure e-commerce businesses, a really successful headhunting business that we talk about in the middle of this interview that I've actually been a client of and a collection of real estate holdings. He's done this by modeling Andrew Wilkinson, another prolific business builder and acquirer. And in today's interview, we jump around between those different businesses, lessons Marshall has learned and perspective that he has gleaned from all of this entrepreneurial experience. It's all over the place, just like I like on this show. And if you're a regular listener, I know you like that too. Here is Marshall Haas. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Marshall, it's nice to be talking with you, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Before we get into your whole story, any connection to the Haas Racing Team? I know that uh, Formula One's coming down <laughs> to Texas this weekend. Yeah, uh, I wish. I uh, I love motorsports. Yeah, no, no relation. Totally wish it was like you know my dad or uncle or something, but no, no. Damn, I feel. I mean, I don't know how common of a last name that is. You would know better than me, but I feel like you could pull some like extended cousin stuff. Maybe try to get in there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, hey, put me in, coach. I'll, I'll drive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I want to start off with, um, a, a pretty simple, maybe not a simple question. How many companies have you started? Ooh, um, uh, it's hard to answer. Cause like, you know, there's so many projects, you know, that in my head was going to be a company that, you know, never, uh, never saw, I will looking back, I wouldn't call a company now. I don't know, man. If I had to guess probably around 10 with only a few of those actually being viable. Um, a lot of like, you know, failures along the way and everything. Gotcha. So when I look at your current holding company, Need Want, I see a service services provider, uh, Shepard, that we're going to talk about in a little bit. I see some things that start to kind of skew into real estate and these other I guess I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even know if I would call a services business more scalable than a products business. But, but your origins are really in, you know, creating physical products and selling them online. So, can you talk to me specifically about what attracted you in that direction? Was it, you know, someone you were proximate to seeing them do it? What what made starting in physical products the attractive route? When I feel like today, you know, stuff like software is way more glamorized because it feels. You know, you need a laptop and a, a education, yeah. basically. Yeah. Uh, so I, early on when I was just getting started, you know, it was like a fresh-faced entrepreneur, you know, looking up to guys like Steve Jobs and and uh, Facebook and, you know, all of, all the software side. I was actually working in software. I had a software uh, project management startup that totally crashed and burned. But during all of that, a couple of years of that, I... Uh, I got really interested in um, physical products. I just thought it'd be really cool to start something that you, know, you can touch and hold. Like 
I would, uh, you know, tell my family about what I'm doing in software and they just like, don't get it. And it just seems so fun to one, like have an idea for something and then like physically be able to hold it. You know, I think I started to feel like it would be easier to sell as well. Like, you know, there's so many free apps at the time. And I just thought like, you know, that you're already, you're not fighting against people uh, expecting, uh, you know, software to be free. Whereas like, if I hand you something and like, you know, this is my, my widget, uh, it's physical. Like you're already assuming that like, of course there's a price tag to it. You know, you're not fighting against that. You don't question, you know, Starbucks, uh, you know, there's of course a price on this piece of coffee or this coffee. Um, so it's kind of that, it was just like frustrated with like, you know, it's going to be hard to like get around everyone assuming something's free, uh, with software. And, uh, I just started kind of jotting down various ideas and frustrations I had. And I felt like, you know, as a, a little one person, two person company, like you're, you could totally make something, you know, like I saw that it was like now possible to like contact factories in China and like, it was now just possible. And so why shouldn't I, you know, make something It's just like, if I boiled it down, it was just an interest, you know, I was just like super curious about how that worked and started tinkering around. And in software, there's the kind of common trope of the MVP, the minimum viable product, and you write enough lines of code and it's, it's, you know, functional enough to get someone interested. Physical products a little bit different, especially, you know, whether you're prototyping or you're going and doing like the smallest run that you possibly can from the manufacturer, seeing what gets delivered and seeing what needs to kind of be altered. So, you know, given your experiences now, you've, you've built a, a number of brands, uh, a bedsheets company, uh, iPhone case company, so on and so forth. Like what, what do you tell aspiring physical product entrepreneurs about kind of testing what it is that they want to build? Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You, it's, it's really hard to, you know, with software, you can make it super ugly as long as it functions you can slap a price on it, you know, and iterate where like, you kind of have to have branding and, you know, the product needs to be pretty solid and good. And like, you know, you can't be issuing recalls uh, day one. So um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the, the pros and cons of software versus physical products, right? Like it's, uh, I don't know if the word of caution is, is the right way to put it, but I would tell people like, yeah, you want to, you want to test and, um, get it right. So you don't have to, uh, to go back and, and redo a manufacturing run because that's super costly and can burn you. And I've gone through that. Yeah. There's honestly, there's just no way around it. There, there's no, like, I mean, well, okay, let me, let me back up. I think you can definitely test things out with small runs. So, you know, okay. Thinking about the final product you want to make definitely needs to fall in what I was just saying. Like it needs to just be pretty solid and, you know, as close to perfect as you can. However, early on, I would work with a manufacturer that uh, will allow you to kind of just source something from them that's similar to something you want to make, build a brand, do a super, super low uh, production run as low as you can, just to like, you know, not burn a bunch of cash, test the idea, see if there's a demand for the space you want to be in. And then I would look at like doing it, you know, the final version that you originally had have the idea for the flip side is uh, Kickstarter, which, you know, I think most people are familiar with pitch, you know, the final version that you want to do and do a Kickstarter campaign for it. But I think today that's still probably the best way to go to get off the ground. But when you deliver on that campaign, 
like you need to have it solid and not, you know, have it as a, the MVP product that, you know, you have a lot of issues under the, under the hood. Yeah. It seems like a lot of Kickstarter ca- campaigns get bogged down in that phenomenon. Uh, yeah. And the, the, it finishes and then the actually executing delivering side. Yeah, for sure. That's, yeah. uh, that's where all the, the hard work is, I think. Can you talk about one of the times where you did have that run and it didn't go well and you kind of had to, you know, get back up off, off the mat? Yeah. Uh, man, uh, it's like a painful story. Um, yeah. So we had this company called smart betting and it was, uh, a bed sheet company. So we were going to sell, uh, you know, full set of sheets. So the top sheet, duvet cover, uh, pillowcases, you know, fitted sheet, all of it. And the, the idea was basically, um, making your bed is pretty time consuming. We kind of boiled down what goes into making your bed. And in our opinion, if you slept with the top sheet, stuck out outside so you had to like tuck it in you had to realign your duvet cover in the top sheet and now that was the gist of making your bed and so you know we we weren't going to build like a mechanical bed that like pulls a sheet and makes it for you the idea was we'll we'll just solve for those problems so we had this snap system along the sides that kind of kept the top sheet and duvet cover together and then we cut the top sheet to be about the same size as the duvet cover so it doesn't stick out so, so that was the idea was to um, make your bed faster, make it, you know, a lot, a lot simpler. Did a Kickstarter campaign. I think we raised a little over 50K in pre-orders, you know, awesome, great. Like this is, you know, high fives, you know, my co-founder, like people want this thing. We, uh, we have a business here and did a production run, found a manufacturer, vetted them, got samples, you know, they were tested a bunch of manufacturers. They were the best quality, you know, all the above check the boxes as far as we were concerned. And, uh, it was just delay after delay after delay. Finally, they, uh, fulfilled about half of it, got our hands on the material and it was nothing like what we originally approved. So it was kind of this bait and switch model. So we had one, you know, like, I mean, at this point, I think it was like a year in, it's like, you know, production run should take 30, 90 days, depending on what you're doing. And then, you know, a week shipping it overseas to your warehouse here to like 30 days back then when we didn't have a global pandemic going on uh, at Sea Freight. So like we were obviously blew way past uh, anything reasonable there. And we were basically at the mercy of this factory. Like we had, you know, that was all of the money that we raised was to, you know, produce this thing. I don't think it was a scam, this factory. Like, I think they were a real factory. We had someone separate kind of quality control person go out and it was a real factory. I don't know to this day, like what happened, but they, they basically uh, kind of fumbled and, and went away. And so uh, never delivered anything else. They had the majority of our funds. We didn't have enough money to produce again with someone else. So uh, while this is all going on, we had, me and my buddy had started some other small e-commerce businesses as side projects that, you know, we're super fortunate that we're, we're making a bit of money. So we, you know, it came to this time, it was always in limbo, you know, it's like, are they going to deliver, you know, are we going to get what we ordered from these guys? They just kept dragging us on and it, you know, push comes to shove, you finally have to make a call of just, 
this is not going to happen, you know, and we need to be honest with backers, you know, Hey, this is what's going on. Or, and just like apologize to people profusely and shut it down or dig deep, you know, take a loan, come up with money another way and do another production run. So, so that's what we did. We, uh, we approached a, uh, you know, high net worth, wasn't even a friend. It was like, kind of like an acquaintance um, about taking a loan for about half of what we needed. And then we put up the money for the other half with basically all the profits of, of the other thing we had going and decided to make it, you know, better, higher quality. We went with linen this time around. It's going to be cotton the first time. And then anybody that wanted to hang on still at that point, uh, we just, you know, uh, delivered a, a more superior product and the retail price that they paid was about what it cost us to do in the first, actually, no, it cost more to do. So they got more than their money's worth. And that was kind of our thank you for, for hanging on. Relaunched with that new product and that, that went on to, to do pretty well, but man, it was like, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I had panic attacks throughout like the year of, of this like arc of, you know, it's your personal name on the line. I didn't want, you know, I had every intention and, and good intentions to deliver on what I promised people, but you're at the mercy and like you're limited. You can only do so much, you know? So yeah, that was, uh, that was one where we just had to further dig deep and take a risk and, and, uh, make it again. Uh, to, to keep people happy and, you know, see, see the thing through. So that's kind of the, uh, the quick story of that one. So, so in an instance like that, where you're delivering something superior to what people paid and it's because of the weight, it's because of kind of the natural progression that you realized you wanted to take with the product. Does an experience like that make you more of a believer in karma? Because all these kind of good things, at least from an external perspective, seem to have come your way professionally. And, you know, you got a holding company with a, a whole bunch of different business successes before the age of 32. Does that make you more of a believer in karma or, or what's your kind of like, I don't know if belief system is the right phrase necessarily. Like what's your framework for thinking about something like that? Yeah. You know, anybody who is going to, scam people or, or, you know, even be just like a little loose with promises and, and stuff like that. Like you're not going to be able to be in business for very long. Maybe you get by for so many years, but like, it's going to catch up to you. So I mean, that stuff never works. Like I'm just practical about it all, you know, like, yeah, I think you should do right by people, but someone that doesn't have a moral compass, I think you should just be wise and like, it's not going to work anyways, you know? Um, so yeah, totally a believer in, in doing right by people. But yeah, the, I mean, let's be real. Like the, we're super glad we over-delivered in the end to people, but there was also a good business reason for us to make the product better. You know, we saw some flaws and some things and, you know, we wanted to like make a better product. So of course it was like, you know, multiple points of motivation, you know, do right by people over-deliver, but also for future customers, like we thought this was going to be the better compelling products. Uh, anyways. So, you know, it goes hand in hand, like do right by people and build, build good products. Like it's just a winning combination. Like the, the, uh, the opposite of it, like just, it doesn't work, right. Whether you have morals or not, but hopefully, hopefully everyone does. Yeah. The going deep podcast is underwritten by Piper creative shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand and grow faster. 
say hello at pipercreative.co. I want to circle back to some of the other product stuff later on, but you, you kind of made the shift now out of being primarily a product entrepreneur. And I've actually interfaced with, you know, the, the, the reason I reached out is because I've had a great experience interfacing with one of your service provider companies, Shepard, uh, which assists people with the hiring of international talent explicitly from the Philippines, uh, completely different price point for labor. Uh, so mm-hmm. can you take us through the kind of origin story of a company like that? Because honestly, as, as, a, as a client of yours, it seems like I've almost like kind of uncovered a secret. Like there's a little bit of like, this is, this is really working. Um, and you know, I'm happy to share that obviously in in a domain like this, but can you just talk about like the origins of this idea? Cause you probably had that same perception of I've got this secret figured out however long in the past before you launch, I believe it's been around for like 17 months or something. Yeah. Wow. You, uh, your, your stuff there. Um, Okay, so, so those that don't know, uh, we're talking about an agency called Shepherd that I started with a co-founder. We're basically a headhunter agency for outsourced talent. Uh, right now, focus on the Philippines, but uh, may expand to some other areas. So simple model, we just uh, hire uh, full-time hires for our clients. So if someone's looking for you know, part-time, like we don't do that. And then we, uh, we don't mark up you know, their time if someone's paid five bucks an hour, we're not billing it out for 10. It's, it's the other way. It's, you know, you guys needed a video editor. We go out and try to find the best video editor we can for you and present, you know, a bunch of good candidates. If you guys like one or a client likes one and they're hired, we take a fee of the presumed first year salary. And then the re- relationship, you know, hands off to you guys. And, and that's now your, your contractor or employee. So, yeah, so the, the genesis of that one I started with this guy named Jomer. He's based in the Philippines. He's Filipino. Awesome guy. He's, he worked for me or, or worked for me for like three or four years. Uh, came on as just like a customer support agent, helping with a little bit of operation stuff uh, at Peel. So just like a, you know, I'm part of the team, super friendly. We got to know each other. We were basically chatting like every day. And uh, my wife and I were, were traveling for a while and I wanted to go to the Philippines and hang out with him and another employee of ours over there. So we, we finally get to like hang out. This is in 2019. And I think Jomer's always had the itch to start something. And, uh, you know, he's talking about BPO companies, which are uh, like business process. Uh, man, I'm freaking the other. It's probably just business process outsourcing, but it's, you know, it's companies that go over there and, and hire staff in the Philippines. And most of them are run in what I touched on earlier, which is great. You need a customer support rep, uh, costs us five bucks. We're going to, you know, give it to you for 15 an hour and they just mark people's time up. There's a lot of that. And we, uh, we just started riffing on ideas and, and ways you could build a company like that today and kind of find your, your niche into that world um, and we, we eventually kind of settled on the headhunter model. Um, and we, we chose that model for, for a few different reasons, but, um, yeah, Jomer and I have partnered, uh, he's the general manager. So he's kind of running the day to day and, uh, he, you know, has been the one leading the team. Um, and it's, it's been awesome, man. It's been a really fun business. It's hit a chord with a lot of entrepreneurs and it's been growing well. How did you find 
Jomer and the other uh, Filipino team member before Shepard? Yeah, uh, that's actually kind of a long story. Uh, I'll try to give you the, the quick one. So we bought an e-commerce company uh, probably in 2016. That is, is long story for another day. Uh, eventually failed, like went to zero. Uh, it was a pretty painful experience. And the silver lining, at least for for our side, was we got Jomer with with the acquisition of that business. So he was doing support for that company that we hired and. When it kind of went bust and it, it wasn't working, we we brought on several of the team members in appeal instead. So yeah, without getting into the, the long story there of that big long failure, um, yeah, he, he was part of that team, and that's how we we got to know him. And then the other team member, um, she's our, our bookkeeper, and I think of I think she was doing bookkeeping contract for a friend. And uh, we, we wanted to, to bring our bookkeeping stuff in-house. And that's how we found her and brought her on full-time. So in terms of scaling, where does this stand in the context of other businesses that you've done? Because I saw a tweet, I'm just going to back into it. Uh, it was at 15 months, you'd gone from one to 32 employees and it's now been another two months. So I have to imagine that unless you know, you've hit some road bumps, it's, it's got to be even uh, further beyond that. Yeah, I think we're at like 40 something employees now, something like that. And that's the internal shepherd team, you know, that's going out and, and sourcing project managers, you know, content person, um, all that. Um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a wild ride. Like all, all the other stuff I've ever done, Max has been like, you know, five to 10 people, I think was uh, at Peel's peak as far as headcount, I think we had 10 people. So it's, it's been wild to like grow that fast as far as headcount and, you know, there's all these company culture things you got to run into and, you know, people running different teams. Like previously for me, we ran a really flat organization, uh, whereas now with that size, it's just kind of hard to do so. So in terms of that type of growth, usually that comes mm-hmm. with some form of financing challenges. Given your background in physical products, I have to imagine that you're more comfortable with debt financing than the average entrepreneur because that's usually a part of like the big inventory runs uh, to some degree yeah. or another. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can get into that. So we we designed the business uh, a few different ways to help solve for kind of the issue that you're touching on, which is just cash flow, you know, and bootstrapping. So um, one of the things that we've done from the start is, uh, so our model, we only get paid when we uh, close a project. So like you could come hire us and it's basically risk-free until we deliver a hire. Um, And people only pay when they actually hire someone from us. So easier to sell, you know, a lot uh, less upfront. However, the one thing we ask for is, is a deposit of $500 from clients, which basically just shows us they're serious and not just like tire pickers, right? So that helps with working capital uh, for the business. That's been, been really good. And then it's been good. It's just know that like, you know, that client's serious. Uh, the other thing was making it a headhunter model where the relationship, once we find someone that um, the client likes, we hand them over and the relationship is now, you know, between uh, that higher and, and our client and, you know, we, we get paid and we move on to, to the next client. Uh, that gives us more cash flow. We're probably leaving money on the table long-term, uh, doing some sort of subscription model, you know, marking up someone's hours. There's, there's other companies that do that. 
Um, but we did it this way so we could bootstrap, uh, get paid, you know, basically percentage of that presumed salary uh, upfront once we hire for someone instead of getting a much smaller amount monthly, but, you know, recurring indefinitely. Um, so yeah, those, those two were definitely by design because I wanted to bootstrap this thing. So we haven't needed to uh, take any loans or, or anything like that, or even put funds on a credit card for this one. It's been uh, totally bootstrap, positive cash flow, you know, all that from, from day one. So it sounds super optimistic, but you, you were talking about like the culture and team building challenges of just something with so many team members, like where yeah. do you fall? Cause, cause you have real estate holdings, you've had all these product companies, you have background software. This is, this is classic client services. So that also right. you know right. comes with headaches. How do you, how do you just, in terms of, you know, feeling like, like, like what, what draws your energy versus what's sucking your energy in the context of those four different business types? Yeah. So very recently I've been able to start putting general managers in place these companies, whereas the model before, I mean, need want when we were doing only e-commerce at one time we had four, I think four e-commerce businesses active. And like, it was the same core team, you know, running them all. And we'd like do a sprint on this one and then, you know, do a sprint on another one. And then this one's been neglected, you know, for six months when you get back to it, you know, or, or worse. Whereas now, you know, some of these have grown enough where there's enough cash flow and profits to actually motivate someone as, as a general manager um, where, you know, day-to-day, you know, buck stops with them and, and it's on them to, uh, to run, run the day-to-day. With Shepard, you know, it's just, it's uncharted territory for me, right? Like previously the biggest we ever were appeal was, was 10. So it's, it's new problems, you know, we have to navigate. Whereas, you know, if we were doing another e-commerce business, I know what to expect at, at different stages and cash flow issues and, and all that. So it's been fun. You know, it's like, it's a new challenge. It's like, I work with Jomer, like I said, he's GM. So day to day he's on things, but we of course are talking a few times a week, you know, about should we hire more staff? You know, what are the, the levers that you used to, uh, to look at, to hire more people? But, you know, it's just like at that level, you want to keep your employees happy. You want to make sure you know, we're being efficient. We're not getting slower uh, with delivering, you know, our services as we grow. Like, how do you do that? You know, do we break out smaller teams? Like all of these questions that we're having to navigate. And then, yeah, just culture, like, you know, team retreats and having a fun thing for everyone to do on Fridays, like that kind of stuff uh, with smaller teams just happened organically. You know, like, hey, you guys want to go out for drinks, you know, kind of thing where when it's that size, like, you can't leave it up to that. Someone's going to get left out. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's just uncharted territory. It's all new to me and it's, uh, it's, it makes it fun and interesting. Last question on that front, just in terms of advice for someone that might be considering this, are there specific roles where you think it makes more sense to do this type of international hiring places where you see people consistently trip up, you know, developers, designers, editors, writers, like what, what's, fair game. Yeah. To be fair, a lot of these hires are, you know, what I think in the U S we'd call uh, junior or, or, you know, kind of mid-level, they're not senior developer, senior, you know, of, of any role. So 
I wouldn't recommend people go out and try to hire, you know, a, a COO or a, a VP of finance via us, you know, I'd build out a bookkeeping team, not a, you know, VP of finance or, a, uh, you know, your CFO or anything from us. Uh, roles where it works really well. Uh, I mean, the uh, anything customer support is awesome. Uh, can get just amazing staff, really well spoken English, well written English. Um, creative on the kind of graphic and video and podcast side of things. There's a lot of really great people um, that we're able to source for our clients. Development and design, like specifically, you know, app design, UI, UX, that kind of stuff. That's hard to source anywhere in the world right now, you know? So like, it's hard for us as well. Um, we, we definitely do it, but it's, it's a harder project for us. Same with development possible, but, but definitely harder. So operations support creative with the asterisk specifically in like graphic and video and, and audio creative. Uh, and then just like general operations, you know, like that was kind of our first hire over there was just helping move and coordinate shipments and, and inventory and keeping an eye on, make sure orders don't fall through the, the cracks. Um, those kind of roles are, are really well suited for us. Gotcha. So that kind of leads me to a, a larger conversation that, you know, as I'm going through this, I'm just thinking about different types of labor competing in different markets. So let's talk about some of the ones you referenced, customer service, ops, these creative roles. Um, I think about, you know, whether it's a younger version of myself coming out of school or just all, all the young people, regardless of their education, trying to break in usually at an entry-level role, which is something similar to these junior roles that you're talking about, and finding themselves not only competing in their local geography with other folks with similar educational backgrounds, but also now an easier-than-ever experience at competing at a global level. So- yeah. That, that's kind of very, that's a very broad kind of prompt to, to bat across the net to you. But, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts generally about, you know, young people that maybe just, just from a, from the geography that they happen to be living in have economic realities where they cannot compete with talent that's in a, in a completely different ec- economy and, and geographic region? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, right, obviously right off the bat, like, let's not sugarcoat it. You are competing now with uh, someone who's willing and hungry to to work, you know, what would be forty to sixty thousand dollar position in the U.S. for for much less, like 80 percent less. But the flip side of that is because we're in this global economy now, you're open for yourself opportunities around the world. It's not just your backyard and your local city of companies that are willing to hire you. So I think that's let's not focus on just the negative with it but it also positive of like you admire that company that is in San Francisco and you live in Boise, Idaho, like you don't necessarily have to, to move out, you know, to San Francisco to, to potentially get a role in that company. And I think that's really awesome. Like super powerful. That's the most exciting thing about this whole remote work thing is just like the world is open to everyone and it kind of flattens um, everything there. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want, I don't think people should be discouraged by the existence. Um, you know, if you're a recent college grad or something, uh, by by what we're doing, um, I, I would look at it as, hey, like I could 
there's a lot of opportunity out there for me. Um, what I would recommend, just like a you know college grad in the U.S. or whatever that is competing against you know talented, hungry, uh, smart people overseas, is um, go shadow uh, you know a lot of different companies that that you admire. Like I think there's ways. I you know don't want everyone to have to work a free internship, but just like volunteer a little bit outside of you know, your, your day job somewhere. I think being a generalist today is, is really, really powerful. You know, so many people go through college or whatever, and you're trained for, you know, one thing. And I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but um, you're uh, much more, I, I think, let me back up. I think the, uh, what is needed is someone who understands a little bit about a lot of different stuff and a lot of companies, you know, if you're in project management, you need to know a little bit about development, a little bit about UX, a little bit about design, a little bit about, um, you know, just psychology and, and people. And so the more you can expose yourself to a lot of stuff like that, I think in 2021, like it's better to be a generalist than a specialist that goes super deep um, in one thing. At least that's my opinion. And that's what, that's what's worked for me, right? Like I'm not a designer. I'm not a, a programmer. I'm I'm um, not like a hardcore sales guy. I just know a little bit and enough uh, about each of those, you know, kind of got to that like 80% with, uh, with a few of them. And I think that's what makes you dangerous um, and, and really uh, valuable to another company. So yeah, that's, uh, those are my thoughts. Yeah. I think the, the specialty skill set, if it's not really deep, is it huge risk because it's a commodity and someone's going to go find a cheaper marketplace to yeah. go buy it? So I, I agree with either the well-rounded little bit of everything model or like go be the freaking best. And yeah, go like be just, top just 1%. A, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, that, and Yeah, for sure. And, and in any form, anything we're talking about here involves some form of free work because if you're going to go be the absolute best at it, you're spending your off hours developing the skills and the traits and, and deepening that expertise. You referenced, you know, internships or, or working for free for someone. The other form of that is making yourself really legible to those, those markets outside of your close proximity. So I, from my perspective, you've done that very much with writing and putting your thoughts out on the internet in a, in an itemized, you know, uh, easily digestible way that says, okay, if I needed to, you know, hire a consultant to help launch my e-com brand, not that you're necessarily offering that explicitly, but like, I would at least kick the tires on having a conversation with you or, you know, ask you to point me in the right direction, because it's very clear that you've, you've documented the successes that you've had. You've outlined your perspective on how to go do that thing. And it makes you really legible to someone who's never met you before. Hence my ability to kind of do my research before an interview like this. That's the yeah. other part where that, that could be free work, but it's building your right. brand and your reputation and making yourself legible. Yeah, no, totally. I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, media is super powerful, whether it's starting a podcast, uh, you know, blogging. I mean, today I think I've seen so many people blow up in the last year just on Twitter, you know, in like business circles, um, I think the way you found us, that, uh, Nick Huber, he's a self-storage uh, uh, acquirer. He's a, a real estate guy and blew up with 100,000 uh, Twitter followers over like one to two years on Twitter. 
by just sharing and documenting his thought process around deals and all that. And so, you know, if you're just getting started, okay, I'm not a investor or whatever, but like you have opinions and thoughts on how you approach different things. I think being transparent with that, whether Twitter, whether a pod, whether a podcast, whether it's YouTube, um, is yeah, super powerful, really interesting things happen when you share your work with the world. Like I've met so many cool people, uh, doing that, you know, just kind of documenting, being transparent, putting little projects on the internet and you, uh, you meet some really cool people that way. Right on. Last question. Then we'll kind of aim towards wrapping up, stand, uh, asking the, the kind of standard stuff, but so by most conventional measures, you've had a ton of professional success. And if you're going to live, you know, uh, a, a long life, it's relatively early in the kind of professional career trajectory. I know that you spent some time at Meta Lab. Um, so Andrew Wilkinson has also kind of done this collection of companies model, put GMs in place and figure out ways to scale that way. Who else are you I always think about it as comparing yourself to, because I'm a big, you know, believer in like mimetic theory, Rene Girard, all that kind of um, thinking on this stuff. But, but who are you modeling as you build out this portfolio of multiple companies with need one? Yeah. Yeah. I honestly, I don't have another uh, person as an example outside of, of Andrew that, uh, you know, he's a friend of mine. Uh, you know, I worked under him and he's been an investor in some of our stuff and, Really, you know, I've seen close up, like, you know, his life and lifestyle matches what he uh, puts out there. Like it's, it, it lines up. He has a pretty well-balanced life and is a good dad. Like that's, uh, that's kind of the model closest that, that I mirror us off of and, you know, props to him for uh, pioneering that. I mean, I think he's heavily inspired by Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger. Um, and we're doing that at tiny, tiny scale compared to, to what they are. I mean, they're like a billion dollar organization, I think at this point. Um, and so it looks a bit different at our scale and uh, I've kind of had to navigate that, but yeah, I mean, for those that, that don't know, we're talking about um, this guy that runs a uh, holding company called tiny. Uh, it's just tinycapital.com. Andrew and his partner, uh, Chris Sparling. Uh, they're like a Charlie Munger and uh and Warren Buffett little duo of the internet and they buy companies and uh, have this small office of a few people and the rest are these separate entities run by a CEO and they're totally separate. There's no like uh, synergies, you know, it's not like this massive company with a core team uh, really, really inspiring. And so his time is, is uh, pretty freed up to, you know, what's, what's the next thing he's not operating in those businesses. And so that's, that's kind of the dream is to plug people in uh, once it's uh, these companies get to a good scale um, and have them run by smart people and, and motivate them with, you know, salary, uh, share profits, equity, you know, whatever is important to them and, uh, and be free to start the next thing or, or invest in the next thing or buy the next thing. So that's, yeah, that, that's kind of the model that, that I uh, aspire to follow. Gotcha. So yeah, I, I don't see many folks. I mean, that's why I, after having such a great experience with Shepard, digging a little bit deeper, um, that's why I want to reach out to you because it is, 
uh, even further behind you in terms of kind of aspiring in that direction, but the concept of finding competent people, putting your trust in them, creating, you know, great economic outcomes for them in addition to yourself, um, and, and kind of living in a state of perpetual, I see it as a state of perpetual creativity because your ability to think up the next idea, go execute on it, that the freedom to, to have that creativity in this form of business building, um, is one that I just have a huge appetite for. So it's cool to find, um, other like-minded folks. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. And good dads. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's to me, it's, uh, you know, you see, Early on, I looked up to guys like, you know, Steve Jobs and Zuckerberg and everything. And then you read Steve Jobs' biography and you realize like, man, like this guy did a lot of really cool stuff and built some amazing products and of course, amazing business. But like his personal life, you know, he was not great. Like, and same with uh, Elon Musk, like the dude's a workaholic, uh, but there are a ton of divorces, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not friends with any of those guys, but like outside looking in, it looks like they're kind of miserable. I mean, if you ask me, there's not a lot of time for anything, but this like core mission. And, you know, if that's what they feel like is their calling, that's great. I'm not here to say that's a bad thing, but it's not for me. And I, I want to be able to be a well-rounded person and not be all consumed by, you know, running my business. I want to you know have a life outside of that, whether it's family, hobbies, you know, all of the above. Amen to that. What a beautiful note to wrap up on. If you want to add another person to that list, if you ever do in that rant again, Jack Welch from GE. Same thing. Number of divorces, and his calling card was that he has literally fired like tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of people, like put them out of work. So that's you know not necessarily. <laughs> oh. Um, the aspiration, despite that kind of deity status in in the business world. But uh, that's a, that's a, maybe that's just a rant for another day. Um, Marshall, this has been fantastic. Where can we send people if they want to learn more about you, need want all the stuff you're up to? Yeah. uh, Need want is just needwant.com, Just spelled like need and want. Uh, I'm probably hanging out on Twitter the most. um, So I'm just uh, at Marshall with one L on Twitter. My Real name is spelled with two, but hey, I could get that one. So I went with one L. Uh, and then my personal website, you know, that's where I put uh, any articles I write. Uh, it's just my full name, marshallhaas.com. Beautiful. We're going to link that in the show notes, going deep with Aaron.com slash podcast for every episode or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. But Marshall, before I let you go, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Yeah. You know, thinking about the the shepherd side of things, um, one thing that kind of led me there is is uh, always thinking about you know what can either be eliminated from my business or my life or delegated. Um, I think you know everyone, myself included, does a ton of stuff that just doesn't matter. You know, in, in like delivering whatever you're trying to do, um, a lot of a lot of what businesses do like just isn't useful and can be just, you can literally stop doing a lot of different things and the stuff that's left, um, at least, you know, for people trying to scale up, uh, we'll look at, you know, in small ways, um, what you, you could delegate. I think that's kind of the, it, literally the only path to, to scaling up, uh, anything is automating or delegating or eliminating things. So, um, kind of always having that lens as you operate, 
in your career and business, I think is, is helpful to, it's like a muscle, right. Uh, to, to kind of flex that and, and always be looking at that and what you're doing. And I think that that's, you know, it does require kind of sharp, sharpening the mind that way, because otherwise you can get just kind of transfixed on well, this part of my day sucks or this thing sucks. And it kind of permeates other elements of it. But, you know, if you, you can find the ways to actually cut it out. And once you do it a couple of times, you're like, Oh snap, I, I'm going to do this all sorts of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. No, well said. Right on. Uh, well, we just went deep with Marshall Haas. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Awesome. Thanks, man. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my interview with Marshall. If you enjoyed this, I think you'll also like my interview with Andrew Gazdecki. Andrew has built a platform that is growing like gangbusters where people can buy small businesses, small online businesses. And it is perfect if you are thinking of acquiring your own portfolio of companies like Marshall. His platform is a fantastic place to start or at least get smarter. I'm going to link that in the show notes to this episode and encourage you to hit subscribe if you've not already done so because we have some great interviews coming down the pipe, including with a cat company. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.